We'll dismiss our kingdom kids, those kids ages four to nine. There's a teacher waiting for you back in the foyer, and they would love to take you over to a time special just for you. And the rest of us will be here together in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and would encourage you to open your Bibles or the Bible that's there in the pew uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't know quite where that is, uh, the page number for the pew Bible is in the order of service. There's an outline on the back of the worship folder to help you follow along. First Samuel chapter 2. When I was growing up, uh, Saturday morning television was all cartoons uh, back in the good old days. Uh, and then in the afternoon, in the afternoon on Saturdays, it was ABC's Wide World of Sports. Some of you, I'm sure, can still hear Jim McKay's voiceover as it came on the air, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory. The agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition, this is ABC's wide world of sports. Now that part in the middle has become a catchphrase ever since, right? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. I heard some of you saying it as, uh, along the way. Because there are, and the reason why it becomes such a catchphrase, all of us in our lives, not just athletes, we experience those extremes in life and, you know, it stinks to be that guy that wiped out uh, on the ski jump. Uh, the agony of defeat. The, the book of 1 Samuel opens with both of those extremes, but it starts with the agony of defeat in chapter 1, and then it goes to the thrill of victory at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. We covered chapter 1 last week where we met Hannah, a woman who, uh, from ancient Israel whose infertility brought her deep pain and a sense of shame, and even though Everyone understood that God had closed her womb. She prayed to God in her distress, and God answered her prayer. This week, we're going to hear her pray again, but this time with joy. Now, to really feel the thrill of victory, uh, we need to go through the agony of defeat again. So I'm going to read all of chapter 1 once more to get that momentum, and then on through our passage today, just the first part of chapter 2. Uh, through verse 11. Now, uh, so I hope you'll follow along. First Samuel, back to chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, uh, Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. Excuse me. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah said, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of Pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, I wonder if this prayer in chapter 2 surprises you. Does it, does it go in a, a direction that you didn't expect? Well, my aim is to help us understand what this prayer is all about and how we, you and I, need to get swept up into it today. That's why this prayer is in this book. It's for us right now. And so the theme of our message is this, rejoice. Every rescue reveals God's justice realized in Christ's kingdom. This is the call. Join in the celebration. Rejoice. Every rescue reveals God's justice revealed in Christ's kingdom. We're going to cover this in three parts. Maybe you've seen that in the outline already. Joy, justice, and Jesus. Yep, Jesus is getting into this message this morning from 1 Samuel. Uh, and, And Hannah brought him in. So, part one, though. Joy. Don't just celebrate the win God has given you. Celebrate your Savior. Now, take a moment to notice the obvious. We've got here, if you're looking at the the text in front of you, this is a a poem, a a psalm. And if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry in the Bible, you know it's not so much about rhyming as about parallel words and and ideas and images. We're going to see some of that in a moment. Now, I'm pointing out the poetic form here because it highlights, it's just one way that we see the, the contrast between her prayer of distress and her prayer of joy. Chapter 1, she's praying feverishly in her agony, uh, perhaps over, uh, well, she, she appears to be drunk to, to Eli. She's, she's lost all composure. Chapter 2, this prayer is the epitome of composition. It's been thought out. It's been crafted, perhaps over months of meditation. Perhaps she's sitting there rocking, nursing Samuel, and she's, she's gotten these words that, that are just going through her mind. Her first prayer was silent, only her lips moving. This is a bold testimony to be heard by all of God's people. What does she want us to hear? Verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So you see some of that parallelism in the the poetry. My heart, my horn, my mouth. Horn? Wait, horn? Uh, That's just a common metaphor in the ancient world for strength, for power, for vigor. For a horn to be exalted is to be like a, a warrior raising his sword in triumph. And that, that exaltation leads to exultation. That's, that's the rejoicing, the reveling in that victory. Yeah! That's Hannah. That's I mean, that's, it's just like, that's how I feel. Uh, Hannah's celebration is, is no surprise, shouldn't be. I mean, she went from barren to blessed, from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory. But doesn't it seem strange that she doesn't even, in her prayer, she doesn't even mention Samuel. No, no, oh God, I just want to thank you for giving me this baby. I mean, he's so cute. He's just perfect. Thank you, God. Um, now, I think she probably prayed that over the previous year or two that, that he was a little one. But 
And, and you, you do wonder too, like, wait a minute, is she thinking about Panina with that comment about her enemies? My mouth will deride my enemies. Like, whoa, a little feisty there, Hannah. Um, uh, all, all that kind of stuff makes people, no, no mention of the baby, uh, kind of a little aggressive there. Uh, all that makes some people think that this psalm is not really Hannah's writing. Maybe she's just, you know, she's just singing a song out of the hymn book, so to speak. But even if that's the case, this is the song she picked. I think it's Hannah's writing, but this is is what she wanted to say. See, she's doing much more than saying, God, thank you for giving me a son, or thank you for taking away the sting of of those insults when I was... had empty arms. No, she worships the God who delivered her from her emptiness and shame. I exult in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. I got saved about a week and a half ago. Uh, You didn't think that's where I was going, did you? Uh, typically, when we hear the word salvation, we think uh, atonement and eternity. You know, the sacrificial death of Christ means I can be forgiven of my sins, and I don't have to pay the consequences in hell. Uh, I will be with Him in glory. I got saved. Perfectly true, uh, very appropriate, but don't miss all the other ways that God has saved you, all the ways He has spared you from catastrophe, all the ways He has provided for you just in the nick of time. And so, like I said, I got saved about a week and a half ago. Um, one of our cars broke down on a cold night of freezing drizzle, and a friend from church drove out into the country to give us a jump, and I got saved. I mean, you know what I mean. And the very next evening, I was driving a different car on another slippery road, had to slam on the brakes, swerve to miss a deer as he ran out on the road. Happily, both the deer and I went our separate ways without a scratch. I got saved again, two days in a row. Now, I, I admit, I didn't go home and write a poem or a praise song uh, but Hannah teaches me, teaches us, don't just celebrate the win. Don't, just, don't even settle for saying, Whew, thank you, God, that was a close one. Worship Him. Worship Him. And if I, if I enjoy telling people the story about how, oh, wait, man, I, the, I almost really got in trouble there. Or, wow, it was so close. Close calls, dramatic rescue. If you like telling those stories... Am I testifying to those rescues as God's goodness in my life? I, my heart exults in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. I think that should be true of all of our salvation stories. But we, we do know that some are more dramatic than others. When God provides a, a good job after months and months of unemployment, or when he brings you through extensive surgery, when the cancer had spread all through your abdomen, and you are still here to testify to God's grace and power in your life, or when you suffer cardiac arrest, and God has on the scene, just in time, some co-workers who had only recently completed CPR training, and you are still alive to sing God's praise. Yeah! And maybe you haven't gone through those kinds of extremes that we've seen in Hannah and our Linda and our Chester. But the lesson is the same. Don't just celebrate the win God has given you. Celebrate your Savior. Worship Him. From both of these chapters, it's worth asking, do we pray like this? In the agony of defeat, do we pour out our soul to the Lord? Are we willing to let others see our brokenness and despair in the thrill of victory? 
Do we point to his salvation in our lives? Do we gladly put God center stage? He's the hero of my story. Okay, now that we have our focus on the Savior, how does Hannah describe him? Verses 2 through 8. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And you thought this was just about having a baby. Part two, justice. The Lord stands alone and puts everyone else in their place. The Lord stands alone and puts everyone else in their place. I was reading a book on prayer recently that said there are, uh, you look in the Bible and the prayers of the Bible, there's basically three uh, main points of emphasis. Uh, change my circumstances, God, change my circumstances, God, change me, or God, change everything as you reveal yourself in power and glory. Change my circumstances. That's the kind of prayers that we most often pray. Um, we pray for God to help us pay the bills, get the car fixed. God, God help me what, do well on this project. Uh, Lord, give me healing. It's, it's right for us to pray, God, change my circumstances. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, just the daily needs. Less often do we pray, God, change me. Change circumstances I, I like that better than change me. I'd rather pray to God to, for, for him to take away my problems than, than ask him to grow my faith and resilience as I face trials. I'd rather ask God for more money than God teach me contentment and generosity. It's, it, I would just prefer pray for the circumstances, not change me. But even if we do pray change me, both my circumstances and me have to do with my world. Do we pray for God to change everything as he shows himself in his power and glory? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, sometimes we come really close to praying those kind of prayers, but we don't go as far as Hannah did. What I mean is we see the evils of our world, we see the injustice, we see the way that some governments are flagrant in their oppression, mega corporations making decisions without regard for individual employees, local communities, or the environment, people in power trampling over the little guys, the voiceless, those who can't fight back, the, the oppressing uh, the minority Uyghurs in, in Asia. We, we see those stories and we might pray, God, step in defeat them, help good people to win. But do we pray with Hannah's confidence? There is none holy 
like the Lord. As powerful as those dictators might be, as influential as those billionaires might be, there is no one who matches the Lord. And no matter how much hope that we may put in one particular leader or our favorite party or some maverick inventor entrepreneur, there is no rock like our God. No one can be our shelter and our strength like Him. Hannah puts the world on notice. Hey, are you bragging like you're in charge? Like you have all the power and no one can stop you? You better shut your mouth. The Lord, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord weighs all your actions. That part at the end of verse 3 is just a preview of what comes up again in, the end, in verse 10. The Lord is judge. When He's weighing all their actions, He's evaluating, He's holding them up. He's deciding who's right, who's wrong. The Lord is judge. Our deeds are held up against His standard. Now, verses 4 to 7 could make God uh, sound like some kind of, you know, Robin Hood figure. Steal from the rich, give to the poor, maybe. And, and you know, every, everybody likes Robin Hood because the sheriff and the king were corrupt. But does Hannah's psalm justify some kind of social revolution? Ooh, I know we've all got opinions about that, right? This, this is the conversation in our, in our culture. We better read very carefully here. Some people see power and wealth as bad things in themselves. And, of course, that's tempting to think that when you're poor and weak. But I don't think this says having power and wealth makes you evil any more than being poor and weak makes you morally good. We, could, we wouldn't read verse 5 and conclude that having children is a sign of corruption while being barren is virtuous. That's not what this text is saying. Panina, uh, Hannah's rival, uh, was not guilty for having lots of children. Her sin was in grievously provoking and intentionally irritating Hannah because Panina, she herself, was able to have kids and Hannah was not. If anything, Panina was the example of someone who thought her accomplishments made her a better person. She was proud. She humiliated others, and God won't stand for it. Now, in context, Hannah is talking about those who uh, don't rely on God in their power and their weaponry, in their wealth and their luxury, their full pantries, and even their full nurseries. They don't need God. They've done it all for themselves, they think. And that's why Hannah calls out their pride and their arrogance, And then verses 4 and 5 describe the world turned upside down. The weapons of the powerful are broken while the weak gather strength and so on. But it's 6 to 8 that really make the point, when the mighty fall, who's behind it? It's the Lord. He's the one who will throw down those who trust in their strength. He will bankrupt those who trust in their own riches. And he will raise up the downtrodden who trust in him. That becomes clearer in verses 9 to 10, which we'll read in a moment, when he sets in contrast the wicked with the faithful, God's people who trust him. And when he says he will judge the wicked. So take another moment with this simple point. This is God's doing, not man's doing. All the the wealth and prosperity and the hope that we want to to make something of this world, it's it's not our doing, it's God's doing. And who will and for all the injustices of the world, how how will things be set right? It will be God's doing, not man's doing. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. Okay, so what are you and I supposed to do with this? 
Please don't hear me say that we should not be concerned with the poor, as if, well, that's God's job, uh, not some politicians, not mine. Uh, Clearly, God is not satisfied with the mistreatment of those who bear his image. We should honor God with our wealth, with our power, with the influence we have, with the way we treat human life. We should recognize the dignity of every, every human being. But that's what so many of these justice questions come down to, isn't it? We're, we're debating, we're arguing over what do we need to do to build a society that is not oppressive. Well, I would argue that the real issue in our culture and economy is not whether we should be socialist or capitalist, nationalist or globalist, fine, fine discussions, but the real issue is that too many people want to run their preferred system without God. In the 20th century, the communists were the extremists on the left, and the Nazis, Nazis were the extremists to the right, and they both rejected God and both had little regard for human life. If you build massive wealth and military power with no regard for God, of course it will be unjust and oppressive. And I'm here to say, hey, I'm, I'm glad we live in a democratic republic with a free market economy, but neither ancient Israel nor the early church did. And they were called to trust God to work hard, to be generous, and to be content, to be merciful. And under God, they would be blessed, and the poor would be cared for, with, particularly within the community of God's people. You can read that whether in Deuteronomy 15, ancient Israel, or Acts 2 in the early church. Now, I'm sure we'd all be, here this morning, we'd all be glad if inflation fell and the stock market rose, if America was on top and China just sort of faded away. But if, but if this nation persists in its arrogance and pride, saying, God, who needs him? Look what we have done. Look at our economy. Look at our technology. Look at our military. <laughs> Hannah says, look out. It's going down. The Lord stands alone and puts everyone else in their place. The end of verse 8, for the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is part three. Jesus. One day, the wicked will fall, and we will rise to sit with our exalted king. Some skeptics read the last couple of verses here and say, well, Hannah couldn't have written this. I mean, Israel didn't even have a king yet. Uh, That's true, they didn't. I mean, that's what we're going to, that's the story that's unfolding in this book. But the hope of a king, the expectation of a king had gone all the way back to, well, since God promised Abraham and Jacob that their descendants would include kings. Even the law given through Moses to Israel had made provision for a king. And Hannah was living in that hope. And it's clear she's looking to the future, even in the shift in the verbs, six to eight, say uh, they, they all say the Lord does this, the Lord does that. Nine and ten says He will do this, He will do that, and that not only po- points to something yet to come, but also the certainty in it. He will, 
he will reign, and they shall fall. What Hannah is saying that God, is that God's justice will come to the earth through the king he sets up, through the one he has anointed. And as we go through this book, we're going to see Hannah's son, Samuel, the one that's just a little kid at this point, he's going to grow up to be a judge and a prophet. He will anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. And to varying degrees, each one of those kings will have some success at defeating their Israel's enemies and some failure. And we might say each one fulfills in part what God had promised to lift the oppression over his people, to give them life and blessing in that promised land. Each one fulfills in part what God had promised, what Hannah was hoping for, for, without fulfilling the expectation of final justice, when the world will be set right. Look at verse, verse 10 again. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. See, Hannah is not worshiping just a, a tribal God concerned with only one land and one people, but through one people, through the people of Israel, He will bring the anointed one. The Hebrew word there comes to us as Messiah. Messiah. Centuries after Hannah gave birth and sang her praise, another woman conceived as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, Mary, who would give birth to Jesus. And I'm about to read part of her song that sounds a lot like Hannah's. This is from Luke chapter 1, verse 50 to 55. Mary says, and his mercy, speaking of the Lord, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever." And, and we could react the same way as reading for Samuel 2. Wait a minute, this is the song you sing when you're having a baby? Well, this is what Mary expected with the birth of her child, the Messiah. Now, if, if all we do is when we hear these passages like this, we say, well, you know, that doesn't mean we need socialism. Well, then we're missing the point just like the socialists. The point is that there are all kinds of injustice and oppression. The rich and the powerful and the mighty better look out because justice is coming. But the weak and the poor and the outcast better look up to God. This is a word of warning and of hope when, when it says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. A word of warning a word of hope. Folks, the kingdom of God will not come by human power. Keep that in mind as you watch the news, as you go through the next election cycle. Where is strength to be found? In the Lord who gives strength to his king, who exalts his anointed. And how was the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus, how was he exalted? Well, it's important to, to see as you read the New Testament, Jesus is exalted on the other side of humbling himself. After he sacrifices himself for our sake, it's then that he is raised to glory. The first time he comes, he comes in mercy and meekness. Folks, the next time he comes, it will be with the sword. It will be in judgment. Now, did you notice how the end of Hannah's prayer echoes the beginning? 
She started her song of praise, my horn is exalted in the Lord. But that's not the point of the story. Our, our stories of rescue, our, our little ways that God provides in, the, in the, the ordinary problems we have in life, that, that's not the end of the story. It's not the point of the story. The end of human history is where we see it all come together. In God's great plan of redemption and restoration, His great rescue, when God will set all things right once more. Messiah will be exalted, His power will be supreme, and that will be bad news for the bad guys. Actually, it would be bad news for all of us, except for His mercy toward those who trust Him. His mercy for those who are forgiven to him through his death for us on the cross. So Hannah's prayer is a call to us today, a call to hope and a call to faithfulness. Because we, we dare not join the world's game of might makes right, or the one with the most toys wins. We dare not give into the world's system, afraid that if we, if we don't just join in, then, then we're going to lose. We'll be left out. Folks, be faithful even if it means being marginalized, being outcast, being persecuted, being poor. You might not get the job. You might not win the election, but you can bank on this. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. If you're in Christ, that's you. One day the wicked will fall and we will rise to sit with our exalted king. And as he himself showed us, on the other side of the agony of defeat will be the thrill of victory forever. Amen? Let's pray.